Turn with you, if you would, this morning to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. We'll read those here in a second. But let me ask you a question. I don't know about the, the kids, because a lot of the kids here in this church are, are, are homeschooled. But, so maybe you don't have, haven't had this experience, but maybe you have. Have you ever been playing a sport and they're picking the teams? And well, how many, let's just say, how many of you are the first one picked? There's Austin raising his hand back there. Of course, the Hulk gets picked immediately, right? But all right, how many of you are like me, though? You got picked last. All these guys in the front row here, right? <laughs> we know there's something that drove them to Jesus, and now we know what it is. Me too. All right, no. I was always the last one picked. I was so short and small for my age. Now, some of you kids in here, maybe you, you struggle. You're a little self-conscious about how small you are. I was four foot ten going into the tenth grade. Four foot ten going into the tenth grade. I was shorter than the shortest girl in the class. It was a day of celebration for me when I passed Cammie Wages, all right? When I passed her, and I celebrated. And I was so small that I rarely got picked first for anything. I mean, you know, I was one of the last two left, you know. There's this guy over here in a wheelchair, and there's Doyle. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll take Doyle, you know. <clears throat> And that was just, that was life. Now, it didn't bother me too much, but really all throughout elementary school and, and even in high school, I'd go out in, in junior high and, and everything. I'd try out for the teams and stuff and never get picked. Now, I'd go out for basketball. Now, four foot ten going out for basketball, I know you, you don't think it makes sense, but I was determined, right? So I'd go and I'd try out and um, I'd never get picked. I'd never make the team, even though I know I could shoot the ball better than half the guys out there, but, you know... I just never made it. Well, everything changed in ninth grade uh, when a new soccer coach came to our school. He was also our principal of our school, and he also taught us apologetics. Uh, It was a Christian school, so he was our apologetics teacher, our principal, and he was also um, our soccer coach. And he ended up being the most influential man in my life outside of my father. His name was Coach Egler, Dan Egler. I remember... As we were about to have soccer tryouts, I'm going out. It's ninth grade now, so I'm going to keep going. I've been trying since I was in. We even had tryouts for an elementary team that I didn't make, all right? But I'm going to keep on trying. I tried for every sport, all right? So here I am at soccer tryouts again. I said, I'm going for it. And first thing he does is he gathers all the guys around. And he tells this story of how when he was a kid, he grew up on an island in the middle of Lake Victoria as a missionary kid. And that's where he learned to play soccer. He learned to play soccer with a bunch of African friends, and um, he, he just grew up playing. And, but when he was in middle school or somewhere around there, his family moved back to the United States. And he, too, I remember him telling the story, and I remember just perking up as he said this. He says, I was very small for my age. I'm going, all right, all right, this sounds good. This sounds promising. And he tells the story of how he went back to the States and wanted to try out for the soccer team in the United States. Now, this is back in the 70s and stuff. Soccer, there weren't very many good soccer players in the United States anyway. So surely he could make the team. But he was never given a shot because he was this puny little guy. And he tells the story. He sat there through three days of tryouts. And he was never put into any of the scrimmages. He just sat there and sat there and sat there. And there's like five minutes left in the last day of tryouts. And uh, he's just sitting there. Finally the coach says, okay, Egler, get on in there and, and do something. And puts him in as a defender. And so he goes in the back of the field, and the goalkeeper gives him the ball, and he says, well, I'm just going to go for it. And he goes, takes off down the field and dribbles past all 11 players of the opposing team and scores a goal. The coach says, stop, 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 and says, who are you and where did you come from, you know, and begins to ask him these questions. And, and he ended up becoming a, a great player for his high school team and ended up being a star college soccer player. And, and I looked up to Dan Egler, not just because of his experience playing soccer, but because he was a godly, godly man. But I remember him telling me that story, and I tried out that year, and I made the team in ninth grade. I made it, finally. Um, he looked past the, I'm sure if I was four foot ten in tenth grade, I'm sure I was, I don't know, four foot eight or something in ninth grade. But he gave me a shot. Now, I'll tell you that story about my life, because when people looked out there at the who needed to be on the team, I was the last one any woman choose. I didn't look the part. 
I wasn't the one that anybody put on a basketball team, a soccer team, or anything else. Today we have Jesus in this text assembling his team. This is the calling of the 12 apostles. And if you look at these guys, you would say they're the least likely guys to be on Jesus' team. But they're the men he chose because Jesus likes to work through weakness. So really, I wasn't joking when you all raised your hand. I said, that's how you came to Jesus. Because you know what? That's how we all have to come to Jesus. In weakness, in recognition that we, in and of ourselves, don't deserve to be on the team. So we come to today's text, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Please stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. Beginning in verse 7, this is the word of the Lord. We stand in the honor of reading it. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip. Bartholomew and Matthew. And Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus. And Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for passages of scripture like this that on the surface may seem just sort of passing commentary, not that important, but in reality is a vitally important passage when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, this morning that you'd open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Grant me the grace to speak rightly. Lord, I pray that you'd give me a voice. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the context here of this passage of Scripture, as we've been going through the life of Christ here, he has returned now to Galilee again in an era of his ministry that the scholars have dubbed the latter Galilean ministry. So he had the first Galilean ministry that we looked at. Um, First he began in Judea where he's baptized by John. Then he went up to Galilee and preached for Several months there, came back down to Jerusalem for an unspecified feast that we looked at in John chapter 5, and now has returned to Galilee for this latter Galilean ministry. Uh, In the course of his ministry, he has begun to get on the bad side of the religious leaders and of the authorities. He got on their bad side because of doing and saying some pretty amazing uh, things. We see Jesus increasingly showing and declaring himself to be more than a mere man. He is indeed making himself less veiled as he goes along. And he's claiming not only to be the Messiah, but also God himself. And the Jewish leaders by this time have decided that they need to get rid of Jesus. These things he's doing and these things he's saying are just too much. They need to get rid of him. Matter of fact, the very last thing we read in Mark's gospel prior to what we read today. Of course, we're hopping around between the gospels. so I know sometimes that's a little bit challenging. But let's go back and look at verse 6. It says this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So that's, that's where we're at. They want to get rid of Jesus. These Pharisees were willing to partner with their sworn political enemies, the Herodians, in order to get rid of a greater enemy in their eyes, which was Jesus. They were blind to the fact that they were indeed enemies of God in the process. And I think all unregenerate men and women are enemies of God. That's what the scriptures teach us. Unless we're born again and brought out of the enemy camp and brought into God's camp, we will remain at enmity with God. You know, I think at this time of year, many who during the Christmas season 
love the story of the baby with all of its warm, fuzzy sentimentality, many who love the story of the baby hate the story of the cross. That's just the reality of the, this Christianized culture that we live in. And therefore, if someone loves the baby but hates the cross, in reality they hate the baby too. Because the baby came to die a death on the cross. Today's text, as I said earlier, may seem just sort of unimportant in surface, but it is important because it serves as a transition in Jesus' ministry. As I said earlier, this is the beginning of a, of a second phase of his Galilean ministry. Most scholars believe that up to this point, Jesus has been conducting his earthly ministry from anywhere from 12 to 18 months. So about half of his earthly ministry is covered in, already. But we still have a lot to go in our series because most of his, the focus now in the Gospels are going to be on the latter part of his ministry. Uh, but there's some transition happening here. From this point forward, Jesus begins to speak more in parables. It's very interesting. Up to this point, we haven't really covered any parables as we've studied the life of Christ. <clears throat> From this point forward, he's going to begin to teach more in parables. From this point forward, we begin to see more hints that Gentiles are going to be included in the kingdom. From this point forward, we begin to see even more opposition, and we begin to see even some of his disciples abandoning him, some of his fame beginning to wear off a little bit. Although it still remains, even up to Passion Week, from this point forward, as Jesus begins to tell parables, and people get confused by some of these parables, and as he gives them bread, but they want more bread, and don't understand what he's saying when you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he begins to lose some of his following. And from this point forward, Jesus chooses to surround himself with a group of men who will be an extension of his ministry, a group of men called the apostles. Now today's text breaks clearly into two sections, verses 7 through 12, which sort of is a summary of what Jesus has been doing, and then verses 13 through 19 where Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. So we're going to look briefly at the first part, verses 7 through 12, and then focus primarily on the second part and ask three questions of the second half of the passage. But this first section, however, as I said, really it summarizes what Jesus has been doing so far. He's preaching, he's healing, and he's casting out demons. These are signs showing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And as he does this, he continues to draw people. And so there's continuing crowds that come around him. But notice three different types of people that are surrounding Jesus here. And so I'll put these in your note. Number one, there were fans of Jesus who sought merely an earthly kingdom. Fans of Jesus who sought merely an earthly kingdom. That's the crowds. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. No matter where Jesus went, it seems, a crowd followed him. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now these crowds were not necessarily believers in Jesus or disciples of Jesus. Some were curiosity seekers, some were admirers, some were trying to get something for themselves, a blessing, a healing. But fans do not equal followers. Followers stick with someone through thick and thin. Fans are simply caught up in the buzz and the excitement. Look at, look at the scene here, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So there's just this frenzy crowd around him. It's almost like a scene today, like a pop star going through a crowd of fans, people just reaching out to, to touch him, these frenzied admirers. So Jesus, at this point in his ministry, remains and will remain largely popular with the general Jewish public. But he didn't seek celebrity status. He didn't desire the crowds. As a matter of fact, in today's text, like previous ones, he's always trying to get away from the crowds. Yet when the crowds do come, he has compassion on them. For they're like a sheep without a shepherd. In today's text, we also see that his popularity is beginning to spread beyond the borders of Israel. It says, in a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Now what that is, is it's ancient Edom. It's an area that had both 
Jews and Gentiles living there, but it's outside of the geographical understanding of what Israel would be. And then it also says, and from beyond the Jordan, this is Perea, the, the Transjordan area, also a mixed population of Jews and Gentiles. And then it says from Tyre and Sidon, this is Phoenicia, the area north of Israel, and it was predominantly Gentile. So people are coming from all these different areas. And what are we seeing here? As I said earlier, we're beginning to see hints that the kingdom is for more than just the ethnic Jews. We're seeing the gospel continue to progress and the mystery of the Gentile inclusion into the people of God is being revealed. Jesus is being presented by Mark here as the Messiah for the nations. That's what Psalm 2 spoke of Jesus, right? Speaking of this messianic psalm says this, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And remember last week, Matthew quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 21 it says, And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So all the gospels so far, Matthew and Mark and, and certainly John and others are beginning to show that as we progress through them, that the gospel was for more than just the ethnic Jews, that the Gentiles would be included in the kingdom. Now the next thing we see, beyond just there being fans of Jesus who sought an earthly kingdom, there were also followers of Jesus who were taught the truths of the kingdom. There were followers of Jesus who were taught the truths of the kingdom. Verse 9 again, and he told his disciples. So he distinguishes between those crowd and the disciples. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. These were people who were not, not merely fans. They were those who had committed themselves to Christ. They were learners. They were more than fans. They weren't there just to get something from Jesus. They were there giving themselves to Jesus. Now we know that there were many disciples, more than just the 12. A lot of times we talk about disciples immediately, especially kids. Growing up in Sunday school, you think the 12 disciples. But, but the word is used much more generally in the Gospels, referring to many more people than just the 12 apostles who followed him. It refers to a larger group of followers and learners of Jesus. This group probably, we know it did include many women as well. And we know that after Jesus was buried and rose again, we know there was at least 120 of these disciples remaining. We read of that in Acts chapter 1. So he asks his followers to get him a boat, his disciples to get him a boat, so he won't be crushed by these fans. So we have two sets so far. We have fans and followers, but there's another group, and a more intimate group, a group that we're going to focus on this morning. And that's my third initial point here, which is simply this. There were friends of Jesus who were brought in to be workers for the kingdom. And of course, I'm referring to the apostles here. So I want to now focus on this group but before we do, let's see how this section transitions to the other section here. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. It says this, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Not to make him known. Now you'll remember last week, how we talked about Jesus commanding people not to make him known. We thought that was kind of strange. Commanding people that his identity should be kept a secret. Why? Well, last week we looked specifically at Matthew chapter 12 and we saw that it was at least partially in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 demanded uh, that Jesus be a suffering servant. The scriptures required him to be a suffering servant and not a celebrity for the crowds. So he demanded silence in order to fulfill Isaiah 42. But we also have seen that Jesus is, is only interested in being revealed gradually and on his own terms and in accordance with his Father's will and to whom his Father wills. And so he's not going to let these, these demons speak about him because he's going to reveal himself as he sees fit. But thirdly, also, I mentioned last week that Jesus only wanted praise and acclaim from those who really believed in him. He wasn't interested in the fickle testimony of the crowds, and he definitely was not interested in the witness and the attestations of demons. Jesus would determine who would testify about him. And so, he chooses apostles for that very purpose. 
to be witnesses. We see here in the text that some of the disciples are set apart as apostles. Now, apostle simply means one sent as a messenger or agent or bearer of a commission. Jesus chooses these men, these 12, to be the ones to spread the news, the good news about him. Jesus wasn't interested in the bitter confessions of a demon or the shallow praise of a capricious crowd. Jesus chooses 12 men to be his sent ones who will be his gospel witnesses. So now I want to focus on these men on the second half of this passage. As I said earlier, I want to ask three questions of the text, and here's what they are. So your next three points in your notes, I'm going to give them to you all at once. All right, here you go. The first one, how did Jesus call the apostles? Number two, why did Jesus call the apostles? And number three, whom did Jesus call to be apostles? So that's how we're going to attack the text. How did Jesus do this? Why did he do it? And who were these guys that he called? So first, how? How does Jesus call the apostles? Now, notice, first of all, in verse 13, it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He went up on the mountain. Now, that has other significance that we will discuss later. But from the parallel passage in Luke, we see that his purpose for going up to the mountain was to pray. His purpose for going up the mountain was to pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So we know from the parallel account, the reason he goes up the mountain here is to spend all night praying. So the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus calls his apostles in total dependence upon his Father's will. In total dependence upon his Father's will. Jesus often demonstrates his dependence on his Father's will by finding secluded places like mountains to to get away from the crowd and to zero in on his Father's will in earnest prayer. We saw earlier in Mark when the crowds in Capernaum came Looking for him one morning after a previous day of wonderful miracles, they could not find him because it says he had risen early in the morning while it was still dark and he had gone to a desolate place to pray. It was after that time of prayer and in total dependence and in total agreement with his Father's will that Jesus chooses to go to other towns and preach and to heal. So here Jesus is faced with a monumental decision to choose those whom he would send out And he goes to his knees for a whole night of earnest prayer, seeking his Father's will. The humanity of Jesus is on display here as he falls on real human knees and bows a real human head and closes real human eyes and breathes out real human words with the most real human earnestness that there's ever been. And he prays to his Father. Friends, if Jesus, the perfect Son of God in perfect union with the Father, needs a whole night to pray, how much more do we? I'm shocked at how many decisions I make, even important ones, without giving it really serious, earnest prayer. I'm sure you're like me. We often fail to demonstrate the type of dependence upon our Father like we should. Think about Jesus spending a whole night in prayer. This wasn't just, Father, help me choose 12 good men. Give me some wisdom. Help me, guide me. Thank you, Father. Amen. What was that? 10 seconds? I don't have a watch, but 10 seconds? All night, earnestly seeking the Father, pouring out his heart, pouring out his soul. I'm sure praying for each one of these men by name, thinking about their character, thinking about who they were, just praying about them, having them in his mind as he's seeking the Father. What about Peter? What about Peter? Father, how about this guy? He's a bit of a hothead. What about him? You want to use him? It's going to be painful if you bring him in, Lord. Because I can see him betraying me. 
Jesus earnestly, by name, is praying over these men, probably other names as well. And how do we pray? Oh, Father, help the so-and-so family have a good week this week. Amen. Where is our earnestness in our prayers? John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, we, we preached this passage, Peter preached it just a few weeks ago. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's why he's praying all night. That he might do what the Father's doing. He's in total dependence upon his Father. Jesus prayed for these special sent out ones so that his gospel might go forth. The gospel was at stake. Do we realize in our prayers the gospel is at stake? That's why Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The gospel is at stake when you get on your knees. Don't sit there and give little pithy phrases that you don't even remember five minutes later. Get down and pray. Pray hard. Pray for your pastors. Pray for evangelists. Pray for missionaries. Pray for fathers and mothers. Pray for children. Get on your knees, church, and pray for one another. Please. And the reason I say it with that much earnestness is because I know me. And I'm convicted by my Lord who prayed a whole night. And I'm thinking, surely he could have just known who the 12 were. But that's not how he did it. And I make decisions because I think, oh, I know what to do here. And I'm a fool. Oh, how we need to be praying. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul, he's praying for the maturity of the church. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Earnestly, day and night. And Paul speaks that way to all the churches. I'm thinking, Paul, you must have more nights available than I have. It's just that Paul was more committed to prayer than I am. And why does Jesus go to a secluded place? Well, logically, in a private place, one can focus and not be distracted. But also, when the crowd is removed, genuine prayer comes to the surface. You see, a lot of people pray fervently and emotionally, but only for others to see. They heap up lots of words and phrases to be heard by others. That's why Jesus tells us to seclude ourselves, Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That doesn't mean we don't pray publicly or we don't pray while we're congregated with others. We do, but the bulk of our prayer life is private. So that the genuine test of our prayer life can be carried out in secret and in seclusion. I'm afraid there's many who come in public places and pray eloquent prayers and emotional prayers. And then they sit in their room and they fall asleep the moment they start to try to pray in the private. The genuineness of their prayer is evidenced in the way they pray in private. So how does Jesus call his apostles? He does it with much prayer in total dependence upon his Father's will. But he also does it in total independence of man's will. Total dependence upon his Father's will. Total independence of man's will. Verse 13. And when he went up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Those whom he desired. Now real quick. I'm going to come back to that. But another thought here as we think about what Jesus desired. Friends, when we earnestly seek the Father's will in prayer, we have a much better chance of his desires being our desires. Right? Prayer that is in line with the will of God isn't just short, pithy prayers that we mindlessly utter to check off prayer on our list of spiritual activities for the day. No, prayer that believes and grasps 
the promises of God, like John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, is a prayer that is earnest and desperate and seeking God's will above our own. It is earnest prayer. Don't try to claim that promise there with your little bitty prayers. Go earnestly to the Lord and cling to that promise. Because only then will your desires be his desires. Or his desires be your desires. Let's get that in right order. Jesus knew his Father's will perfectly. So he, he chose whom he desired. But this text is, is a very, very much a clear proclamation of Jesus' sovereignty. He didn't have a lottery. All right, we're going to, I got 120 disciples. I only need 12. I'm going to give everybody a, you know, a, a number. I'm going to call numbers out of a hat. And he didn't do that, obviously. He didn't have tryouts. This is an American apostle, you know, you know, sitting there at a desk. All right, preach for me. No, nothing like that. He didn't have them submit their resumes or qualifications. He simply chose whom he desired, whom he wanted, whom he willed, Later, Jesus would tell his disciples, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He chose them. He chose them dependent upon his Father's will, but independent of man's will. This is how Christ works in salvation as well, friends. That's a sermon for another day. But this is how he works. Dependent upon his Father's will, independent of man's will. So he chose them, verse 14 says he appointed them, literally that he means he made them apostles so that they might do a certain thing. So which leads me to my next question. So we talked about how he called them, now why did he call them? Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might, number one, be with him, number two, he might send them out to preach, and number three, have authority to cast out demons. So there's three things here. Number one, he gives them this personal companionship. He wants them to be with him. A personal companionship to absorb his message. Then he gives them a preaching commission to announce his message. And then he gives them a powerful confirmation to authorize his message. I'm trying to be sort of MacArthurish here, giving you some things to hang on to right there, all right? So a personal companionship, preaching commission, and a powerful confirmation. Jesus is drawing in a group that will be closer to him than any other humans have ever been. That's why he wants them to be with him, to learn from him, to observe him, to absorb who he is. They'd have breakfast with him and lunch with him and dinner with him. They'd sleep in the same fields he slept in. They would rejoice with him, mourn with him. They'd listen to him as he walked from town to town. They'd listen to him tell story after story. They'd watch, they'd observe, they'd imitate, they'd soak it all in. They'd see the amazing way he reacts to adversity. They'd observe his revolutionary treatment of women. And they'd be blown away by how he welcomed children. And they'd witness him lay down his amazing life as a ransom for many. Now you may say, wow, what an advantage they had. Well, yes, they were called to a special task. But no, we don't have an earthly physical walk with Christ. But we have more, actually. We have his spirit residing within us. We, in a very real way, are united to Christ. And we do have that intimacy with him. And we do have the witness of those who did walk with him physically, which is right here in our scriptures. So that's, what we're do, that's why we're doing this sermon, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ so we can walk with him like the apostles did. We want to see him. We want to hear him. We want to learn from him. And we can if we'll just look. He let these apostles be with him so that they could give us these words, this scripture. But he also appointed them so he might send them out to preach. He gave them a preaching commission. And then he confirmed that preaching commission by giving them a powerful confirmation. By giving them authority over the demons. Essentially, Jesus is sending them out to do what he was already doing. When he gives them authority to cast out demons, he is giving them authoritative signs to confirm that the message they were preaching was actually his message. The apostles were given a unique authority over the realm of disease and the demonic so that the world would know that the message they bore was the message of God. 
So these are some of the reasons why he chose the apostles. These three that we've already looked at right here in verse 14. But there's more. There's more here. Um, matter of fact, if you think we'll look at, at some other things here that might not pop out right away, we'll see that there's more here as to why he chose the apostles. First, let me remind you what he did. What did he do? He went up the mountain. So he goes up the mountain to be with the Lord and then came back down to the disciples. Who would that have reminded all of the Jews of? Real clearly, Moses. That would have reminded them of Moses. The symbolism here would not have been missed. Jesus is continuing to show that he is the fulfillment. He is the substance of all the Old Testament types and shadows. He is the new Moses. And how many apostles did he choose? Kids? Twelve. Right. And what would that have reminded the Jews of? Twelve what? The twelve tribes of Israel. That number would not have been lost on the Jewish people. Jesus is again showing that he is inaugurating a new Israel. A truer Israel. Old ethnic Israel and old, the old covenant was fading away as the new covenant reality. And the new Israel of God was coming onto the scene. Jesus is the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, the obedient Son of God, and thus is the new Israel. And all who are united to him by faith are thereby part of the new Israel of God and are children of Abraham by faith. And so even the Gentiles are now being grafted in. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you want all the references that all that scripture came from, I'll give them to you later. I'm not making that up. That's straight from the Word of God. Jesus has already shown himself thus far in his ministry to be the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new mount of God, bringing in new worship with a new Sabbath rest. And he is indeed inaugurating a new Israel in himself, the obedient son called out of Egypt. Jesus was the son called up out of Egypt. So he calls 12 apostles corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundation of the new Israel, the foundation of the new Jerusalem, are these 12 apostles. Revelation 21, verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is the church, my friends. For we know that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says... That the church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we have the, the new Israel. And this new Israel 12 will sit in judgment upon the old Israel 12. Luke twenty two twenty nine. Jesus says this, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus chose these 12 to not only be with him and to continue to do his work of authoritative preaching, but he also chose them as a statement that he was inaugurating a new Israel. So we've seen a how, and we've seen why, and now the last question is whom? Who are these guys that he chose to be apostles? Now, think about this task that we've been talking about. Being sent out to do the work of Christ. Being the foundation of the church, the new Israel. I mean, that's a pretty big task. So you'd think that Jesus would go out and get the cream of the crop. Find me your best Pharisee. Find me your best religious leader, your best priest. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
He doesn't go get the best of the best or what men consider to be the best. You'd imagine that he'd go and select some astute theological prodigy. You'd imagine that since he's calling them to preach, he'd go find some good orators. Or you'd imagine that he'd pick some strong and imposing dude, like Austin back there. Some strong and imposing dude if he's going to be casting out demons, right? You'd think he'd go get strong people, wise people, eloquent people. That's not how Jesus operates. Let's look at this list and we'll see that ordinariness stands out. These are simple men, unimpressive men. You also notice that Jesus gives them some nicknames. And he uses some of the nicknames they already had. This shows a level of rapport and closeness that already exists within this group. But you also notice that you give nicknames to people based upon what they're like, right? Nicknames usually reflect their character or some physical attribute. I mean, we had a guy on our soccer team in college called The Tank. I don't have to tell you what he looked like. You already have it in your mind, right? He was a big dude. And so keep that in mind as we look at this list here. So first, verse 16, he appointed the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Of course, Peter means rock. That's his nickname. And of course, we all know Simon. He's a fisherman, but he's also the leader of this group. And by the way, the, the, every time the apostles are listed, they're listed, all 12, And Peter always leads the list. So he is the first among equals. And it also is always broken down. The same four are always mentioned together in a group. So the first four are mentioned together, then the next four, and then the next four. And that's how we have it. So there seems to be, and we know less and less about each one of them as we go down that list. So there seem to be even some sort of organizational structure within the apostles. So we got Peter here. He's the first among equals. Um, He got his nickname Partially, I think, because he was hard-headed. He was also impetuous and quick-tempered. But we also know that he would become a rock. A stabilizing force for the church. For at Pentecost, he becomes the boldest and the most notable preacher in the church. Then we have verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. So here's another nickname, Sons of Thunder. Sounds like a cool name. Sounds like a television show, to be honest with you. Sons of Thunder. Well, I don't think it was really a compliment. I think what he's saying is these guys are hotheads. They lose their temper quite easily. We know that from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. After a Samaritan village was unwilling to, to have Jesus come into their village. I mean, you got James and John saying, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Sons of thunder indeed, right? I mean, this is how they react. They're hotheads. Harsh, unloving hotheads. They were also arrogant and self-seeking. You remember they got their mama to come and try to secure a spot for them? Beside Jesus' right hand and left hand? Yet, through Christ they would change, wouldn't they? James would become the first Apostle to give his life in martyrdom. And John would be the last apostle to die. Isn't that interesting? These two brothers. The first apostle to die and the last. He died on the Isle of Patmos. And this hothead, John, by the end of his life, he'd be known as the apostle of love. That's what Jesus does when he takes ordinary men. He transforms them by his grace into something extraordinary that he has done. Then we have Andrew. Andrew was one, another one of these uneducated fishermen, like his brother Peter and James and John. And we don't know much about him. Uh, he seems like the sibling who's always outshone by his brother. Maybe you can relate to that, right? You just don't get the attention because Peter's you're my brother. He's getting all the attention. Maybe that's how Andrew felt. I don't know. He's quiet, but we do know this. What we do see him in scriptures, we see him bringing people to Jesus. And we see the same thing from Philip, the next one on the list. Philip also introduces people to Jesus in the scriptures. And we also see that Philip isn't afraid to ask good questions, especially in the Gospel of John. We see Philip asking some questions. Well, Lord, how do we know where you're going? He wasn't afraid to ask good questions. Bartholomew, his other name was Nathaniel. Uh, He was a person of blunt honesty. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You have Matthew, also called Levi. He's a tax collector. 
a traitor, really. I imagine many of the other apostles, the other disciples at least, were leery of this guy. I mean, at some point Jesus says, one of you guys are going to betray me. And I bet they all thought, it's going to be Matthew. Surely, the tax collector is going to be the one that's going to betray him. I bet he was the one that was the suspected to be not quite on board with everyone else. But he would be used, of course, by God to write one of the Gospels that we have. Thomas was a twin, and he was an apostle who I think gets a bit of a bad rap. Yeah, he was the doubter, but he was honest. He wasn't faking things. He didn't just show up with the other twelve. Oh, yeah, I'm happy Jesus is alive and just pretend. He knew he needed more to believe. He was honest. But when he did see, he made one of the most beautiful confessions of all of Scripture. He fell on his knees and said, my Lord, my God. James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't know much about him. Levi is also called the son of Alphaeus. So James could have been Matthew's brother. We don't know much more about him. In some places, he's called James the Less. And that really, is a nickname that really translates the little. That may refer to his stature. He may have been a small guy. So he's James the little guy. I don't know. Maybe that's a nickname. Jesus is counting 11. Oh, James. Okay, gotcha. That was me. Steve the Less. Then we have um, Thaddeus. Not much is known about him, but it's interesting. His name translates mama's boy. He's a mama's boy. So I don't know what's going on with Thaddeus. That's all we know. All right? Maybe they're out on the road and he's crying, I just got to be home in Nazareth. (laughs) I don't know. He's a mama's boy. Then we have Simon the Zealot. This guy was the equivalent of a radical right-wing militia member. He was a political revolutionary. I can only imagine the conversations between him and the tax collector. Quite interesting, I'm sure. And finally we have Judas Iscariot who betrayed our Lord. Jesus chose him too. Jesus was not surprised or caught off guard by Judas. No, he chose him in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He chose his betrayer. I can't think of a more sad human being than this man, Judas. A man who lived with Christ, was in his inner circle, only to betray him into the hands of bloodthirsty men. What an interesting group. None stand out as anyone great. None stand out as special. Yet these men are the men Christ chose to turn the world upside down. These are the men Christ chose to begin a chain of gospel-preaching events that reverberate to right now. We preach because Christ chose these men. This is how God works. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, and we'll close with this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So why did God choose them? To give himself all the glory. And why has God chosen you? Same reason. To give himself all. All the glory. Because you, friends, are just like the apostles. I don't want to offend anybody here. There's nothing special about any of you. All right. Nothing special to earn merit with God. Yeah, you're special. You created the image of God. And God has poured out talent and gifts into this group. And I, I just praise God for that. But your talents and your gifts earn you nothing with God. The only thing that earns you favor with God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is given to you. Because Christ would lay down his life on the cross for these apostles and for you and for me. Absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf and then giving us his righteousness. His 
righteousness. Unbeliever, if there's an unbeliever here this morning, I invite you to come. To come put your faith in Christ. To turn from your sin. To believe that he can and will forgive you of your sin. He died to take the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And believe on him to receive his righteousness, his goodness, and and a new nature. And when you repent and you believe in him, he'll put your life on a new course. He'll put you on a new mission, a gospel mission. And will bring you into the greatest adventure you've ever experienced. No, we're not like the apostles. That was a unique group. But we too have been called to preach the gospel. To spread the message. We too are being sent out. We've been called out and now we've been sent out. That's what the Great Commission is all about. And he chose weak, foolish, vulnerable people to make it happen. And I'm so thankful that he did. Because friends, you and I don't deserve any of the glory. When it's all said and done and the gospel has reached every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, only one person is getting the glory. It's Jesus Christ. And all of us weak sinners will gather around the throne in all our different colors, of all our different cultures, and we'll worship the only one who deserves worship, King Jesus. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and ask now that you be with us in all that we do the remainder of this Lord's Day. Father, our worship doesn't stop here. Help us, Lord, not to leave this place and turn off a switch in our head and to Go into a different mode. Go into entertainment mode. Father, help us to be worshipers in every aspect of life. Even when we are participating in entertaining things. Going and watching an orchestra or a symphony or going and hanging out with friends or whatever it might be. We are to do that for the glory of God. So God, help us to worship you. We, we don't worship you well. And God, help us to be earnest prayers. Forgive me for my lack of earnestness in prayer, Lord. Father, we're about to add an elder at our church. And, Lord, I just hope that we have prayed hard. I hope that we've prayed hard. Because the gospel's at stake. And Lord, as we go about our business every day, whether it be someone that works in a place where they have opportunities to share the gospel, or whether they work at home, or whether they're just teaching their own children, these are gospel opportunities, and they need to be bathed in prayer. But I pray for the homeschool moms in here that they would earnestly pray that they have a gospel opportunity the next morning they wake up to do school. Pray for those that are in our public schools, the children here. Lord, that they would be earnestly praying that they can share the gospel with their lost friends. So God, I pray that you'd give us a spirit of prayer. Lord, we go out now as we sing this last song. We sing it about you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We want to see you and savor you more and more. Jesus, I just pray, Lord, as we enjoy, and we should enjoy just the sentimentality and the hallmark feeling of the Christmas season, that we wouldn't let it crowd out the cross. Because all this means nothing. It is of no more value than a hallmark card if we don't have the cross. So now we pray these things. We ask, Lord, you receive this final song of worship as a sacrifice of praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.